0: easy-to-engage, on-demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash innerprofessional. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Legendary Leaders podcast. And today I have a powerhouse of two women here with me, and I'm not going to share everything about them with you. But let me introduce them to you separately. First of all, we have Anne Trenzeris. and Anne is affectionately known as the Oracle, or what made me laugh, is Yoda by her clients because she brings a lifetime of study, experience, and knowledge of evolutionary and developmental psychology to her personal and business practices. And those experiences, those insights, that knowledge she shares with us today in a really really lovely way, bringing a lot of humor into her stories and experiences here today on the podcast. She has a real passion for enlightening and empowering people to live from their authentic selves, and that drives her never-ending quest to understand the complexities of being human, integrating approaches from numerous fields of study of the body, the mind, and the spirit. Well, and then we have Heather Trenitzaris Hilliard here with us, a powerful and pragmatic expert in transformation. And Heather has devoted her professional life to enabling organizations, leaders, and individuals to achieve their potential. She is dedicated to empowering people with the tools, insights, and roadmaps to break through limitations to achieving their visions and thriving in all aspects of their life. Now they are doing their work together. They are authors and speakers supporting the individuals in particular leaders around them. And becoming their best selves, really. And this conversation today is not just insightful and intriguing. It's full of joy and, as I mentioned, humor as well. Um, both of them truly authentic, talking about their strengths and their flaws as well, bringing them to life in order to help us understand what's meant by leadership skills and how can we as leaders really improve the way we lead others around us, but also how we lead, obviously, ourselves. We are talking about their very personal story today as well. We are going to talk about one of the books that they have written, so you think you can lead, is um, the title of it. And we are going to talk about some best practices of leadership, their observations in the world of leadership, how leadership has changed, how leaders really need to adapt to those changes as well in order to get the best out of their teams. And then let's not forget that they have developed their own psychometric assessment, which is called Striving Styles Personality System, something they're going to introduce to us here today as well, and how the brain and how the brain works in particular has been included in that assessment. So let's hear from them, the experts, Anne and Heather, and I have no doubt that you're going to enjoy this episode very much. So speak to you again in a moment. Well, hello, hello, Anne and Heather, so good to see you again. How are you both?
1: Excellent, excellent. Good to see you again.
0: Yes, so
2: nice to have you on your show, Kathleen. We really appreciate being here and
0: talking to your legendary leaders. (laughs) Yes, legendary leaders as well, I want to highlight. And why the two of you are legendary leaders, I believe there are tons of reasons, but let's explore them together, shall we? Excellent. So first of all, perhaps you could give the audience a short intro into who you are. And what you are doing on a day-to-day basis. I don't. I start
1: off with that one. So, you know, I'm Heather and uh, Anne is my business partner. We've been in business together now for uh, almost 25 years. And our business has always been focused on helping leaders to evolve themselves uh, as leaders and increase their effectiveness, but also to help them to evolve their organizations. And our particular specialty is eliminating leadership dysfunction inside of organizations.
0: Thank you, Heather.
2: Yes, and, and just to add to, to that, we do, we use a number of approaches, systems, people, what, wherever we need to come into an organization to help leaders. But, but in essence, we, we do teach leaders, the people who are leading, these human beings who are leading, actually how to lead from that skill-based perspective, not just from their personality or the strength of their personality, But really putting it into a way that leaders understand that there's more to leadership than just showing up and leading and telling people what to do or hoping that people will do what's expected of
0: them. Absolutely. And you gave me this beautiful segue actually into discussing legendary leaders, right? What does a legendary leader look like to you? How would you describe a legendary leader, basically? I
1: think the first piece that we always talk about and it's where we start with all of our clients that are interested in in increasing their impact as leaders so that they can become legendary as well is with self awareness so so legendary leaders are truly self aware so they understand how they're driven to behave. They understand their innate strengths and talents, their unique abilities, but they equally understand their blind spots, their their behaviors when they're being more self-protective and how that sort of crosses over. And they they look at that and take that understanding and that self-awareness and they develop relative to it so that they are not at the mercy of some of their habits or impulses or as Anne said, their personality, but they're really able to stay out leading and directing. So leading themselves and that ability to Lead others, and that's what really makes them legendary. And then mm-hmm. because they're not in that reactive state and they're not just trying to survive their experience as leaders, but they really are uh, able to be authentic in their approach to leading because of that self awareness.
2: It's it really is. Uh, when we think of legends, we think of um, people who are memorable in our lives mm-hmm. and who have who have stepped out of their own comfort zone to help us, even though it was difficult for them. And and as a result of that, they have actually made that imprint that allows us as as their followers to take that next step ourselves. And they do more than. Simply direct performance, they engage us in a way that wakes us up to our own potential and what we're capable of doing as human beings. And so the legend, (laughs) the legend, the people that I think of as legendary leaders are those who have. Had that willingness to do the difficult things in their job and not just go along for the sake of peace in on the team that that they're leading people out of their comfort zones Mm -hmm. where where people are able to grow and develop.
0: There's so much in everything you have already mentioned um, that we could delve deeper into. And I remember, and when we had our first conversation, you were like, yes. Kathleen, you better schedule a little bit more time. I have the feeling you like to go deep. <laughs> yes, I'd like to do that. Um, and therefore, I'm very curious about, in particular, some of those um, skills you were referring to, how you are teaching that. It. it sounds so simple to say, Oh, people or legendary leaders are so self aware, right? How can we become more self-aware? What tools you are offering? And I think these are just some of those topics we are going to discuss. However, Anne, I also have a tendency to delve deeper pretty quickly and forgot yep. uh, forget about some other very important aspects and there is one that I want you to add to your introduction that I find so intriguing. You are not just business partners, are you? <laughs> That's right. We are. <laughs> we are mother
2: and daughter as well with a very unique history in that. I gave Heather up for adoption because I had her at the ripe age of almost 17 and um, we had a reunion when uh, um, almost 27 years later and very quickly came to see that there was a lot of compatibilities, not just in our personalities, but in the way that we viewed life. And the work that we were doing in different in different areas. We both had an interest in, in helping people achieve their potential, but, but coming at it from you know, Heather from that more organizational consulting and myself from the, the psychological development of human beings.
1: we always say it makes us uniquely qualified to answer questions about nature versus nurture when it comes to leadership, right? Are leaders born or are they made? And it's like, well, you know, from our experience, (laughs) you can, you know, you can separate me out from my biological mother, but at the end of the day, I'm still a reflection. And, and there's so much about me, my mannerisms, my, you know, not as Anne said, our, our shared interests, the, the alignment, the values, all of those things having grown up in a completely different kind of household and yet Coming back together and going, wow, these are my people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this is awesome. It's such a great feeling, and and that's where I think in as we started to work together, we were really looking at our own personal experiences and and how do, how does our work extend and be a reflection of what we're trying to do in terms of our own personal growth and our own personal journey? Because it's not easy to come back together after twenty seven years of separation yeah. and forge a relationship as you know, mother, daughter, business partners, friends, because there is only 17 years separating us. And, and so a lot of the work we did with our clients, some of the tools even that we developed, some of the books that we've written, are our, our reflection of that journey in our lives is a little bit of a Petri dish, right? So let's experiment with ourselves. <laughs> We're struggling with this. Our clients must be struggling with it. Let's, let's see how this experimentation goes. Let's now, tr- after we tried it out on ourselves and our spouses and our children, because of course they're part of our Petri dish, we take it to our clients and, and see the kind of traction we can get and tweak and evolve. And, and I think that's part of, you know, if I go link this back to legendary leaders and, and sort of our reflection on it is we're always trying to grow. We're always trying to take that next step and find that next step and figure out what it is. And in our sort of our general role in working with clients, because we are working with clients, is we have to have gone through some of this experience ourselves mm-hmm. in order for us to really guide our clients through it. And so that's why we're so, you know, willing with our clients to, to share those experiences Experiences with them, but also to be to make sure that we're always thinking ahead of what are they going to need next. So if they're going to continue on this journey of development, what what are they going to need next, and how do we make sure that we're going to be ready for that when
0: they're ready for it? Absolutely. And uh, you touched up on it, right? I, I'm trying to put myself into your shoes, which is hard enough, but learning that your biological mother is in a certain location, you meet again. I could not imagine that I would be in a position where I say, hey, really nice to meet you. Let's work together, shall we? <laughs> I, 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 would, I would assume there is quite a bit of work to be done in between. So, so help me understand what that process was and also, indeed, how you applied leading yourself and how you had to manage your emotions and, and whatnot
2: well, i I think from from my perspective, uh, I always come at relationships from where do I find common ground and where where's the other person at so that i can I can meet them where they are? and And my biggest struggle in in coming together with Heather was, I'm not her. I'm not her mother. I'm her mother. I'm not her mother. I have no entitlement to say, okay, well now you have to do this with me because I'm your mother. And, and I, I was really cognizant and aware that whatever relationship, if we were gonna have one, it had to be based on meeting Heather where she was from where I was and setting aside my own need for her, <laughs> you know, to because it's that natural desire of, okay, well, let's pick up where we left off and that that couldn't happen. That would have blown everything up. And when I'm talking about this, I'm thinking of leaders' expectations of employees when leaders want employees to be a certain way or have certain developed skills but they haven't really done the work to get the employee to where they need them to be and then they get impatient and they blame the employee for not meeting the leader's need and and it's that sort of awareness that leaders need to have back to your question of you know it's easy to talk about self-awareness but if you you're not aware of what you're what you need and what's driving your behavior you're just going to act out of your instinctual brain, your impulses, your emotional needs, and expect other people to know what you need and be mm-hmm. able to be the person you want them to be so that you'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And to, and so managing frustration, managing patience in, in the process of getting to know someone or getting to uh, bring an employee along to where we need them to be are very similar things.
1: Yeah, we, uh, if there was a... About a three and a half year span between the time Anne and I reunited and when we launched our business. So it, yeah. it was a very small window and yeah. our relationship was still very much in early stages of its development. Yeah. Um, to Anne's point in my mind, you know, I have a mom, I have a, you know, an adoptive mom who's great. And, and so it's like, how, how do I do this? Cause our, we were not raised to have multiple moms so, well, <laughs> more so these days, but anyway, at the time it was a, it's sort of this new concept, but I think what brought us together was Anne was doing work one-on-one with leaders in her executive coaching practice. And she was finding that as much as she could help them, there was a context that they were in that was really affecting their ability to be as effective as possible and to apply some of the things that she was coaching them on doing. I was doing work with organizations trying to get behavioral change and cultural change in organizations, but we were doing it from a systems perspective Mm -hmm. and we weren't getting the traction in the behavioral change. So we start talking and Anne's got this incredible depth of experience around personality type. Mm -hmm. So she introduced that to me and it's sort of, we just kept having these conversations about some of the things that we were seeing and how could we start to problem solve it. And when I had my first child and was looking at what do I want to do and do I want to go back into the consulting environment? that I was in, Anne and in her brilliance said, well, why don't you start your own practice? And why don't we go into business together? And there it was. And I'm like, oh, okay. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and that's, I, that's as simple, let's do it. And so, so yeah. here we are. <laughs> uh, and we were in different cities at the time yes. same t- at the time too. Right. So, I mean, it's, you know, and, and the last thing I want to say about it, the interesting thing is, you know, talk about us growing as individuals. When we started this, I didn't, no one knew Anne was my mother. I wouldn't, tell anybody yep. we didn't re- we don't refer to each other that way but every now and then you'd have a client who is observant enough to say you guys related
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: are you sisters so, yeah so now about i guess it was about t- thirteen, maybe 13 14 years ago we we went more public with the whole story and 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 that and and now i have clients who because they work with both ann and i when they're talking to me they'll say how's your mom and i i still have to do a bit of a oh <laughs> Which one? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so, I'm so true. So we call it, you know, we use. I don't call her mom at work, right? So it, it's uh, anyway. So that's uh, lots of fun to the story, and there's a lot of learning and growing that's gone on, and some tears that were shed along the way as mm-hmm. well as as is the case in any growth, you know, yeah. stepping out of our comfort zones and and trying to forge something really unique between us. Yeah.
0: And I mean, I find it so incredible what you have achieved. Uh, the, the way I've met you so far, right, it seems so aligned, so connected, uh, really healthy. I don't know if that's a compliment, but I find yeah. the two of you in <laughs> the dynamics I'm noticing really healthy. <laughs> There's no better word I can use. And I, I can only imagine how much work has gone into that. And it is still going into that. Because for me, one key component of leadership is that you keep growing and learning. You are never going to be the finished version of yourself, will you? yeah. yeah
2: and one of the, the uh, things that, that I brought in into our practice was mindfulness in the about 2006 I think it was when I did the the training for mindfulness and that both Heather and I have worked really hard to maintain a non-judgmental approach to where people are at and to what's going on with each other and and so staying understanding that people aren't perfect and the more you judge other people, the more you have to reflect back on you and say, you know, what's in it for me where I need to feel so superior to Mm. other people and I have to judge them. But as we come at people in that non-judgmental way, it allows us to be facilitators of their growth and development and as well be accepting of each other's personality type, each other's behavior, even when we press each other's buttons, we still go to, we seek to, first seek to understand as
0: opposed to judging. And I will get back to the non-judgmental approach in one (laughs) moment. You you triggered something here. Um, But you see, you see with the two of you, it's like, I (laughs) have to really keep up. You're keeping me on my toes (laughs) here. But Anne, you mentioned beforehand that it's important to understand one's needs and the needs of others. So it was important for you when um, Heather and you reconnected, for example, to not, I, I call it jump right in there and step into this mother role, because that would have probably gone exactly in the opposite direction that yes. you wanted. However, I'm i am just wondering, I imagine Heather being your employee, for example, because you shared before and it's the same in organizations, right? So how was that situation of reconnecting for you? How did you connect with your needs? How did you express them? And how did you make sure, you know, those two needs levels came together? Well, I had a need to be
2: around Heather, And and so so because Heather's style is is more extroverted. Heather's more initiating in terms of just calling up and 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 so that was very satisfying for me because I I didn't feel like I was pushing anything. I was giving her space to you know take her time, especially in the beginning, which I later found was a bit frustrating for her because I was never calling her. <laughs> And and so sometimes we don't get it right, you yeah. see, when, when we're over over concerned or over solicitous of other people's needs. Mm-hmm. But but the, the ability to delay gratification, I was all over that one. I knew I had to delay gratification. Because uh, I would just have gone and spent all kinds of time with her or, you know, told her she had to move back to Ontario and because I'm quite directive and (laughs) at the worst of times, at the best of times, I can be very directive, you you see, and I had to curb that in order to nurture the relationship. And, and delaying gratification, of course, is, is one of the elements of both executive presence and emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. where we do at times have to suspend meeting our own needs. Yeah, It doesn't mean that we live without them forever, mm-hmm. but we can impose them on a, a very fragile situation yeah. or relationship. Yeah. Thank you, Anne.
1: Anne and Anne I have to- talking. Yeah, but we've been talking about needs. It's a kind of a core one of the core pieces that we use in our work with leaders is understanding the needs that drive your behavior. These are deep seated hardwired psychological needs and, and Anne's talked to some of the, the the other needs as well, but that really understanding, you know, what it is that, that, that you need and how that need you, you work to, your behavior works to get that need satisfied and being really conscious of those needs and how they're playing out. And I still remember, you know, as we we sort of moved along and and Anne was playing with this idea around needs and, and how do we make this more of a transparent thing. So people, we were always trying to answer the question, why do people behave the way they do? And can we give them a user manual for themselves so that they really understand it. So this needs piece came up and I still remember Anne saying to me, what is it that you need? And I'm like, I don't need anything, right? <laughs> I, don't really, I can't possibly need anything. I don't have any needs, right? Cause you know, I'm a superwoman and I'm super,
0: of course, I need so, I possibly I'm
1: talking about disconnected, right? And so this, this was a really interesting learning experience for me. So where, cause Anne came into the relationship because of her background as a psychotherapist and as a coach, and she has a very, you know and, and all of the research and all of the work that she's done around personality and human development and, you know, neurobiology of relationships, all of those, you know, she's a, a walking guru, right? So she's the sage and and uh, all, many of our clients refer to her as Yoda. And I'm the, ampli- I'm the amplifier, right? So I'm the one that, you know, <laughs> makes it really loud and big out, out in that space. And I, I often will joke that she gave birth to me just so I complete that piece of her, right? So That's take all right. of her wisdom and I can help her spread that wisdom out in the world. Um, but it was a really interesting learning experience for me because I really had no idea what I needed. So while she was navigating all of this in the background, fortunately for both of us, I, I was disconnected from, I didn't know what I needed and I couldn't articulate it because it was still so, I was in process, right? And I'm not directive. I'm a little bit, let me see how it unfolds and <laughs> let me play here and let me play there. And, 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 and so that was some of the frustration too, that experienced, and, and we see this in workplaces as well, where one person is much more aware of their needs versus somebody else. And, and so we, we get these collisions that happen because I would be doing something unconsciously that would frustrate her need. And then, you know, and then how does she bring that back around? Because of course, especially when a relationship is, you know, in early stages is like, you don't want to bring too much that perhaps might cause the relationship to shut down or or take Mm -hmm. a step back. And again, this was not a perfect, straightforward journey. There was lots of three steps mm-hmm. forward, two steps yeah. back, a leap forward here. And and in our work with clients, this is what we're always ta- talking about. I had a situation yesterday where a client wanted to have a conversation with one of her colleagues over a situation that happened. And I said, no, that's about you. That's about your need. She doesn't have that need. This is not going to go well. Don't do it. She says, this is a coachable moment. And I said, yes, I'm coaching you. Don't do it. <laughs> so She went ahead and did it anyway. (laughs) And I said, this is you trying to get your need met at the expense of you being powerful and in your power and authority as a leader. Um, and, And anyway, so, you know we had a chance to unpack it because I actually happened to be there while she tried to have that conversation. And I didn't say, I told you so, but but I, you know, I just said like, see, look at that experience you just had. That's not you leading in your power. That's you giving your power away. And again, go back to legendary leaders, legendary leaders, they don't give their power away, right? Mm -hmm. They're comfortable with exercising their power and authority. And that's where, this aspect of really understanding your needs and how those needs drive your behavior is really critical so that we can self-manage and not do things in that more unconscious, impulsive way that that gets in the way of us being as effective as we can be.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And let's talk a little bit more about how we can actually identify our needs. That's a question I discuss quite often with my clients and those questions come up, in particular from female clients of mine so frequently. So I really don't know what I need because they might have been so used to just fulfilling other people's needs and serving others, putting their own needs perhaps somewhere, somewhere right away or very far away from us, and then they are not in touch with them anymore. But before we go there, you actually triggered some thoughts and reflections um, inside of me, in particular what you said, and beforehand. That sometimes you can take it so far and it can even be hindering just to try to fulfill someone else's needs. And I have personally experienced quite a few uh, situations where I thought I give someone space, right? I know people need to be on their own and reflect from time to time and kind of recover their own energy and whatnot, whatever they need. And I'm someone who then says, okay, I absolutely respect that. Let's give space, However, I might now be perceived as someone who withdraws or, you know, is a bit distant and the walls come up, which I have been told quite frequently in my past uh, at work and my personal life. And then suddenly you distance yourself from one another and you uh, kind of break down bridges. And that's something that really stuck with me. And I became very aware of how to find this balance between trying to meet someone else's needs but at the same time, not taking it too far, so that actually you achieve exactly the the opposite.
2: Yes, a very meaty question <laughs> so so when when we look at authentic needs and and our striving style system is based on e- each of the Uh, Young's functions in mental functions and consciousness, um, having a predominant need, an emotional driver of the behavior. And I'll just give you an example of that. Uh, For those familiar with Myers-Briggs, if you were an ENFP, for example, your predominant need would be to be recognized Mm -hmm. because you're a performer you need to have center stage if you're an istj you would have a predominant need to be secure because you want the world to be exactly as you need it to be in order for to get that need met and you don't go out of your comfort zone very much and and so recognizing that biologically you see, our needs are wired into our brain, our predominant needs. And because we all have four fun, four mental functions, we have four needs that are constantly competing to be met. But then there's all of those other things that are go under that bucket of needy. You see, I need approval. You didn't approve of me. You hurt my feelings. You're not a good friend. I'm not going to talk to you. <laughs> you know, there's, there's that whole... More superficial understanding that comes from one person wanting another person to act the way they want them to act in order to get some younger need met. Mm-hmm. You see, because when when our people that we're in a relationship with are, are our audience, and that's all that the you know we end up being an audience for a lot of our people because we're listeners and not everybody knows how to listen. And so we we start talking and other people hijack the conversation. Then we can feel upset and accuse our friends, or we can understand that we're contributing to that, depersonalize the situation and try and build a bridge. And deal with the actual issue of, I've contributed to you believing that I have no needs because I never tell you that anything's wrong in my life. And then I wonder why, you know, you never asked me anything. <laughs> you know, I, I'm contributing. And it, it's the very same thing that we do with leaders where they have a tendency to blame their employees for, for how their employees are behaving without looking at how am I as a leader with my leadership behavior contributing or allowing them through my behavior to behave in that fashion and we teach them to depersonalize the behavior of peers and and look at what is the issue not i don't like that behavior what's wrong with them it's central to to the work that we do in developing our leaders
1: the other thing I'd add to that, too, is going Kathleen, going back to what you had said is that, that getting really comfortable with articulating our needs and, and and not feeling like, you know, I know for me, part of my whole I don't have any needs because, you know, being needy, that's a bad thing. Right. So that's my judgmental brain saying mm-hmm. I, I and that, again, based on my development in my childhood, that was sort of the, the message track in my head, right? You know, show that you have no needs and and you get to stay out on uh, up front. but, but it's when you get to comfortable with it and, and recognize that that's a need you have, then you can say it, you can own it and and you've got the power in it as I, I have a need right now to take a bit of a break or, yeah. you know, or be, to be able to say to the other person, I'm not really sure how best to serve you in this moment. Do you need me to give you some space? Do you want to stay connected? How do you want to see this next? step happen. And we don't go into that place of, you know, curiosity and conversation or even getting comfortable with being able to say like, you know, for me, I'm an ENTP, going back to Myers-Briggs language. So I'm also in that need to be recognized category. So my family all knows that. So they better make a big deal out of my birthday (laughs) (laughs) or other events because that satisfies my need. Now, my daughter's same personality. So we always went over and above for her birthday's for that reason, my son, on the other hand, doesn't have that need. He mm-hmm. doesn't want to be center stage. He wants something a little bit more subtle, a little bit more subdued. He's the same personality style as mm-hmm. Anne. Interestingly enough, an INTJ. And mm-hmm. So, so we adjust mm-hmm. our practices as a family in respect of those different needs. But we always give them the opportunity to participate in the conversation about it. Is this going to satisfy you? What would you like to see happen? And and I think sometimes we we make. We, we impose what we would prefer in that situation on somebody because we don't think to say, how do you, what do you want me to do with this? How do you want me to help you? Or how do you want us to to proceed on this basis? So we don't make assumptions or choices on their behalf, right?
0: Gosh, you brought up quite a few things again. I, I am an <laughs> ENFP, right? And I'm like, no, I don't need to the stage. no, 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 no. <laughs> that's not the case but i think two out of my uh managers i had in the past said you really need recognition and acknowledgement don't don't you and i said they're like no <laughs> no i do <don't> not <laughs> but then i wonder why i get frustrated in so many situations right it's about owning it <laughs> yes well it's okay it's okay yeah. right
2: yeah, absolutely. Well, And ENFPs have a, a real challenge because on the one hand, they it's a push-pull. I am going to work so hard to get recognition, and if you give it to me, I'm going to go, oh, it's not, <laughs> not a big deal. <laughs> you know, and the, the mixed messages that we can send out, you see, yeah. when we we don't just land on this is it, I want some approval. Mm-hmm. And I've got clients who will say, you know they're like 37 years old what's wrong with them they still want me to approve of them but you're their leader they need approval in order for them to really build a foundation of confidence in what they're doing don't judge them by their age yeah. And, and until we get out of that mindset where, we, you know, we think emotional maturity is based on some sort of linear route or, or by age that we measure, you know, now that you're 35, you can no longer feel these things, you see. But that's where most people come from. Yeah. And they judge it as immature.
0: And, and also there is for me a very pragmatic approach to that. If I know their needs, at least I can do something with it. So instead of getting caught up about, well, how could they still need that at (laughs) this age? I'm like, you need it? I give it to you. Let's get going, right? Yeah, it's transactional. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an ENFP quality, right? Being very pragmatic and forward-thinking. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit more about the needs. I mentioned before that I encounter quite a few individuals who struggle to identify their needs. And I think my question is a bit twofold or has two questions, actually. The one thing is, why can it be so hard to identify our needs? And what can we do to become clearer about the needs?
1: So the the place that we start with most of our clients is with our proprietary system, the Striving Styles Personality Mm -hmm. System. When we develop that tool, it's an evolution of the Myers-Briggs, and it's based on Young's theory, as, as Anne pointed out we have incorporated needs theory into it. So we make it really explicit mm-hmm. um, so that when they do the assessment, they actually learn what their predominant need is, as well as the other three that, that are going to be competing to, to be met. So, so it is having, going through that process of a self-assessment, the psychometric tools are really an important part of that, yeah. uh, because they are rooted in the brain. So the more we understand our brain and how our brain works. And again, from a needs perspective, that's really useful. We talk about, talk about the eight needs. I think having said that the, you know, you brought up a really good point, which is even when we, we are confronted with being told that need, our first response is, I don't need it. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> uh, I, I know even the, um, I can't remember what the assessment was, but I, I was in some group that had done it and, and I came back with similar to the need to be recognized, it was sort of star or something, right? And I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not like that. Like that. <laughs> and, and we hear it from our clients all the time. And, and it, it's like that how do we move to acceptance? How do we move to that place where if in the back of our minds the story that we're telling ourselves is I shouldn't need anything and I don't have any needs, or you know, I um, you know, I don't like the fact that I have this need, like one of the needs, and, and this is Anne, secondary need is the need to be in control. And and so we see this in some of our clients where we say that's your need. And and, and they again they like, well I don't like to micromanage and I'm but it, it's it's like again we have to embrace it and go, well, what does that actually mean? Do you have a need to be in control? That means Anne doesn't like it when I forget to communicate things to her because <laughs> she's not in control. Or I wait till the last possible moment to tell her my plan because she's not in control. <laughs> and and so it's it's being able to say so then she can say to me, hey, you're forgetting I have a need to be in control. to this sooner right and and there's no offense taken in it but it takes coming to that place of as you said it's it's first doing the doing the assessments there's there's lots of great stuff out there that that helps to kind of make that connection and and to ann's point we're not talking about needs like the need for approval we're talking about those eight hardwired psychological needs that we're we're working from from a brain function perspective
2: and if I can add to that, Kathleen, in my like just minute long psychological development of human beings is that we first develop a psychological system, the psychological system in our brain that allows us to feel psychologically safe. It is not who we are, but it provides a context for ourselves to emerge from and and so with this construct i i I always say it's like the immune system to the brain it's the system there that is wired to protect us from perceived assaults on our psychology and so if somebody says you, you know i like you better in red and i perceive that as a threat and you're telling me that i don't look good in this color right i'm 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 protecting myself needlessly because I have an overactive, self-protective system. And I haven't yet built enough confidence in my authentic self because, hey, Mm -hmm. I don't even know what I need. Mm -hmm. I'm so busy from that system, and, and it's in that system that we get attached to the need for approval. That we're looking for others to validate and approve of us and we work really hard and, you know, we bend over backwards for people for approval. That is our self-protective system. That is not really coming from ourselves and negotiating, you know, I'll do this for you, you do this for me, you know, you expect this of me, I expect this of you. There's no negotiating from that system. It is simply, I abandon my own needs and sometimes don't even know what they are in order to stay psychologically safe and secure. And it's only through that process of, you know, recognizing I am entitled to Need something. I'm entitled to ask for something. I'm entitled to ask for time alone without everyone, you know, getting upset with me for not being there for them, you see? And, and the, that first step in understanding our needs is letting go of that need for approval, really detaching from the care that caring what other people think. It's the village.
0: <laughs>
2: what will people think?
0: Yes. And uh, I actually, I just came out of a workshop for women in leadership and it's again, been a huge topic. Yeah. Getting caught up with exactly that question. What might other people think? Because people were coming and going, right? In that workshop. And the one boundary we said was, you are here for those couple of hours, let's show up. But what was the challenge? Yeah, but someone else needed me. And if I said no, what would they think? How would they react? So, and what I'm saying does not come from a place of I'm judging them. It comes from yeah. a place of, I'd, I'd love to help here. And I see it as my role to support as well. Um, so any tips that you can share to stop, not not stop that system of uh, need for approval, but yeah, to silence this voice a little bit more, that would be really helpful and welcome.
2: Well, then we always think that we have to get rid of things and silence them as opposed to what we need to grow. Internally, Mm -hmm. those people who behave like that do not feel a healthy sense of entitlement. And and so as a result of not feeling, I'm entitled to stay here. I'm entitled to have two hours just for me. Mm -hmm. But if you don't feel, if you do not believe that you're entitled to that, you will always be reacting to the needs of others. And, and so the first step is, you know, really examining why you don't believe you're entitled to what you are entitled to. These are earned entitlements. This doesn't mean, you know, an inflated sense of entitlement as we have in narcissism, you see. Mm-hmm. This is simply, I work really hard. I've earned the right to kick back for a couple of hours and watch TV without being judged mm-hmm. <laughs> or without, you know, having, having to cook dinner for my partner who doesn't work, you see. Mm-hmm. that we, int- we have entitlement because of, of the work that we put in. And when we don't own it, we give our power away. And we're doing a lot of work around this about leaders who who disempower themselves and then they blame other people for for that when we're actually going here, you know, take this and you can have this part of me and you can have this and yeah. but it's 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 getting really clear that our development belongs to us and that if we're not working at flexing that muscle, it's going to remain very very weak. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And that's something I'm, I'm uh, noticing very frequently. And I would say I saw myself in it for years as well, where I was blaming then the other people, the system, Heather, right? Um, the system is constructed in a way that there is no room to push back or to really own my own development. Um, yes. and, and that makes it easier than to say it's okay, right? I'm I'm kind of forced to be here. But are we really...
1: It's, and and we do, as Anne pointed out, we hear this from leaders all the time. And they talk as though they're powerless to do anything about this, the situation that they're in. And one of the things that I, I know even... F- for me but also with our clients we talk about this notion of boundaries and rules right so so part of the way in which we you know we give give our power away is because we haven't defined for ourselves the boundaries within which we are going to operate or the rules that we are going to adhere to and and so because because there aren't firm boundaries it's like i have a client right now who thinks nothing of you know, asking me to work till, you know, midnight in, in the evenings. And that's like, but that's one of my boundaries. I don't, I, I did when I was in my thirties and we started our business cause I had no boundaries and I, you know, i whatever, <laughs> whatever it takes, whatever it takes. Right. But it's, but it's like part of my development was to learn how to set those boundaries so that I could preserve my energy and my capability and be as productive as possible. And, and we see this with our clients who are constantly moving at the mercy of others or in reaction to others is they don't have that sort of inner sense of, okay, here's just a couple of really simple rules that I'm going to follow. And I'm, I'm going to keep to, and because that's going to allow me to feel powerful. It's going to allow me to lead myself in my life. And it'll allow me to do those things where I can give myself permission without, you know, without judgment. And, and again, it can be really simple. things. Ann and I have a rule that we don't have client meetings on Friday afternoons. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, all of our staff know it. All of our clients know it. <laughs> and, and nobody, you know, occasionally one will slip in because it, it's urgent enough. But but for the most part, we hold that, right? Because that's a discipline for ourselves that allows us to start the next week, you know, really feeling fresh and, and protect our time and not have to work on the weekends, hopefully. You know, it, the idea of it is if I don't have a rule that says, you know, learning is a core part of, and I need to spend at least four hours a month in learning, then I'm always going to be giving that time up. And then I'll be complaining that I never have any time to learn or read or participate in these other things. And, and so it's also flipping around and saying, you know, what is it that I want and what's my plan or what are my boundaries that are going to really protect myself and and protect my time and my ability to achieve those things that are important to me. If I say they're important, then I should have a plan and some rules around it to make it happen.
0: Also, let's, let's talk a little bit about what are the benefits of doing that, right? You're not protecting your developmental time or your Friday afternoons just for the sake of saying no. There's clearly a positive outcome of yes, those behaviors absolutely. and steps you are taking. So in particular, in the work that you are doing with your clients, what is it you notice in them? What's the change? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, geez, a whole, I just saw a whole whole
2: line of, they feel... And he, I, I do not always characterize it, but they feel like they're leading. It's they're no longer at the mercy, and and they're no longer complaining about not having enough time. So the complaints go away. They act in a more empowered way, and instead of saying, "Oh, I can't do that. That would be too hard," they say, "I did that, and I was surprised at how easy it was." Mm-hmm. And that's saving so much time and and we really push this whole thing about you know efficiency efficient you deal with the issue you don't deal with emotions because once you start dealing with your employees emotions you're there for a couple of hours if you deal with the issue you might be there for 10 minutes it is inefficient if you don't get right to the issue and and that when we're catastrophizing about all of the possible outcomes of having a difficult conversation with an employee, you know, and it can be something as simple as I swear telling an employee about their grammar and, and correcting their grammar in emails that leaders are afraid to tell their employees because that might hurt their feelings. And you may have this experience yourself, Kathleen, with your your clients, but when it gets down to these simple ways that our leaders are disempowering themselves, I say, I think the biggest thing is these acts of small, these small acts of power. You see the personal power, the role power that they use to help people. I mean, imagine letting somebody make mistakes for months and months and months, but they do in both the small and the larger things. And Heather's got lots of stories of some of the larger things <laughs> that occur as a result of, you know, putting feelings before results and alignment.
0: And and okay. in this case, I would say their own feelings as well. Yes. So it's not just about perhaps hurting someone else's feelings. It's like, I feel uncomfortable. Yes. Or I feel insecure about having this conversation. Yeah yeah we t-
1: we talk a lot about fear as the you know the the primary driver of most behavior um because when it comes down to doing what you say you want and doing what you're afraid of it's it's the the you know, or, or doing something that's causing fear for you it's the fear that's going to get the response right and and that's where you know in some of the dynamics we work within within executive teams that it's that fear they're showing up out of their fear patterns their self-protective system that ann talked about and so their behavior is is more about you know trying to be the smartest in the room or the, the you know the loudest voice or to to try and uh, you know be in control of the situation so it's all this acting out that's going on so when we look at the change we're creating in that dynamic is that emergence of the self-awareness so they can catch themselves when they realize they're being self-protective and they're not using leadership skills they're just showing up as humans and, and operating in survival mode and nothing happens and I, I was with a client yesterday Yesterday, where we had this, where we're, we're trying to eliminate some bad behavior, <laughs> 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 judgmental but unproductive, dysfunctional behavior that is alive and well within this dynamic, um, and it and it was really interesting because they, you know, it, it's like they they start to shift a little bit back, and I keep having to go course correct and say, you know, don't go into the emotion of it, don't go into like folk, don't focus on the experience of it is. What's the issue? What's the plan? What's the next step? And it's trying to keep people moving out of the emotional and into the objective um, so that they can actually lead things forward. And and this is a group that will get caught up in spending hours of their time going around in circles because they're all doing this big pile on. Of course, they're on their best behavior when I'm in the meeting. So that's also one of the changes that we see. It's like, oh, look, you can behave well. (laughs)
0: Let's
1: keep that up when I'm not in the room. But I think that that what they will all say is that level of awareness and understanding about their own behavior, the behavior of others. But but one of the key things that I, I know in, in my groups that we we always sort of work on is that list of issues that have gone on for a really long time that have gone unresolved, the things that they're constantly complaining about. And, you know, I have one organization where they've been complaining about the same leader for nine years and done nothing about it. So, one of the things that we'll often do is we'll make a list of what all of those recurring complaint items are, and we will start to take action to eliminate those. And, and that's to Anne's point is those places where it's like, wow, I can be powerful and I can do this and I don't have to just accept it and tolerate it and, you know, keep complaining about it. There's a huge satisfaction mm-hmm. for leaders when they start to clean up their messes, mm-hmm. right? And the weight mm-hmm. of it, the weight of that burden yeah. of all of those messes we've created because we're not leading effectively and we're, you know, practicing bad leadership habits or we're avoiding conflict or we're being overly permissive, whatever it is, it's a real weight on us. Yeah. And, and so when they start to feel that lightning and they have positive experiences around it, it sets their brain up for being able to, to try again and, and keep moving out of their comfort zone while they continue to build up that, that those competencies that they really need as leaders.
0: And also you nurture some of those skills so they become second nature. I yes. think um, conflict is, is a great example, right? Procrastinating on conflict, arguments, debates, whatever it is, you are pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. You're are not having the conversation you need to have. When you realize the conversation wasn't actually so hard, right? Immediately, a a huge amount of weight gone. And then you realize, oh, perhaps I should have the next one a little bit earlier. And and you start putting that in place and creating those habits and noticing, hey, not that hard. Let's get it going. And hey, I'm building some great relationships as well. How good is that? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And, and that's what grows the confidence, as Anne has said, right? Those uh, positive experiences where we're really feeling our, our power and our ability. And it's that, you know, our potential is hard at work. Our confidence grows. And so the next time we're faced with something that's creating some discomfort, we now have this experience where we can say, wait a minute, I had discomfort over there and I took some action. And it was imperfect action, but I did move it forward. And that, you know, allows us the next time it comes up. And, and we we see some clients though that they they get so self-protective that they really struggle to do anything. So, so while we're talking about, you know, sort of from the, the positive perspective, there are still lots of leaders that we work with that despite knowing, despite the support, the coaching, the, you know, that they, they are just so frightened to make any movement out of their comfort zone. And, and in those organizations, we have to teach the others around them how to work around that kind of leader. So rather than it making it about that leader, it's like, what, how do we develop up everybody else around? Because if we've got a leader who is just too, for whatever reason, frightened yeah. to make those moves, that, then we have to support the organization and the leaders around them because people still need to keep growing, right? And we don't want that leader to shut everything down organizationally.
0: Yeah. And that's probably a moment where also identifying and and communicating our needs might be very important just to understand what's what environment uh, meets my needs. Yes. Yes. And do a bit of soul searching for yourself, I'd say.
2: Well, and to your question about the the women that, that you were just talking about, Kathleen, needing more time and closing one's door, (laughs) you you see, recognizing and just starting with something very sensing oriented. It's, It's real specific with leaders who don't have boundaries, that they their door is open all the time, yeah. and um, we have a client who everybody praises him because he oh you know they just oh he's so wonderful he always has a long line of people outside of his door just waiting to talk to him and I said but isn't that a reflection of someone who isn't delegating enough authority and they had never thought of it because he takes such pride in being needed, and and that's where he gets his power. He doesn't delegate, he doesn't lead with consciousness, he doesn't see the impact and the dependencies on him that he fosters. Mm-hmm. And just getting him to say, I'm gonna close my door and people have to make a, an appointment to, to talk to me, they have to book it with my assistant, he first, I can never do that. They need me, they, you know, but he needed them to need them, mm. you see? And we look at th- that level in an organization of what, what, is a, what is a leader afraid to give up? Because everyone, we all do, we all have to give something up to grow. We have to give up our comfort zone, for one. <laughs> we have to step out so that we can grow, but we don't know how it's going to be if we start leading differently. And and so that, that's that two steps back that Heather was talking about where leaders will do a lot of training and development and then go, oh, I just don't like the way I feel when I'm doing it this way. I'm going back and getting back into those weeds and I feel productive and I'm you know doing so many things every day and people need me again yes. and it's all good.
0: You trigger so many memories today. It's unbelievable. (laughs) It has never happened to me before. Um, But I do remember um, when I stepped up in one of my leadership roles and suddenly um, worked on a different level, partnering more of the senior leaders, for example, right, and had a team around me that I became so incredibly busy, and I know busy is a very fashionable word, but I didn't know where to start and where to stop. It felt literally out of control, and I was flying around a lot and visiting different sites and offices and whatnot. And I literally had to realize the hard way that delegation is key and taking the people around me with me to grow and take over and take charge themselves as well was vital. And I remember um, when I went on business travels, there were already booked meetings and then left a, a bit of time for, you know, spontaneous conversations and connection points as well. There have, has never been a chance where I could meet with everybody. And that was, but it was for me a really tough realization, right? The hardest thing was that years afterwards, I received a message from one of the employees and it still pains me actually. And that message was, well, I I seem to have only time basically for senior leaders and not for the common people, which is something deep in my value. That's absolutely not the case. It's like, oh my God, oh, it hurts so badly, but I literally had to make choices and had to say, okay, team, can you please, you know, be in service of people X, Y, and Z while I'm doing that? And together we can achieve something. And it's still painful. But those had to be boundaries I had to put in place as well.
2: And and when we don't look at our need for resources, you, you see, if you look at the issue there. The, the the time is a as a resource, people as a resource. You were under resource, but you weren't saying to yourself, "I'm totally under resourced." And mm-hmm. how do I lead my way out of it? And Heather and I always find that with with most leaders that where they they're almost in the glamour of being so busy, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm mm-hmm. yes, I'm always so it's it's I'm always so wonderfully busy. That <laughs> um, that the, what they're not doing because we ask them this is what's your plan to get out of here Mm -hmm. and they have no plan and so okay so you're planning to stay here that's it if you if you're as a leader aren't recognizing that you have the power and authority to lead yourself and others out of this place you have to go full-on stop and meet that need for time to plan yeah but those reason the issue is being under resourced relative to the amount of needs outside of you (laughs) Yeah, and it's absolutely. not per- it's not personal. It's not personal.
1: Yeah, but that, the the flip side of that though, because I think that's a really great example, and we hear it with clients all the time, where employees make comments, you know, like you know, whatever it is, they pass a judgment about your micromanaging or, you, you know, and and in this case, it's like, so why did why we always say why did the employee feel entitled? to to make that comment, because this is an employee who clearly has no awareness of others, right? Not thinking about or appreciating or empathizing with your own situation, but whatever was being frustrated in her, she felt that it was okay to to go out and, and basically make a judgment um, because that's what it was, right? It wasn't a fact. She made a judgment because she, you know, sort of applied this reasoning of, well, you're only interested in this, these people and not the common folks. And that's why you're not, as opposed to saying something like, I know you're really busy, but I would love to have a little bit of your time the next time you're around. Right. Yeah. And, and so her attack on you, you know, she made something that wasn't personal. She actually made it personal. Mm. And then, so because she made it personal, you felt it personally. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, this yeah. is one of the things I know it was one of the things that I had to learn because I wasn't that aware when my employees were making comments out of that emotional place. Right. And that place of, and, and, Anne sometimes would say, why do you let them talk like that? <laughs> I'm like, <"What?"> <laughs> <laughs> I have a choice. <laughs> Me, I just like, sometimes I just like, oh, okay, oh, whatever. I don't know, It wouldn't register. But, but, but it, it is that we hear with employees and, you know, they get accused of things. Leaders get accused of things. Yeah. And then we, we feel it. We take it on as opposed to looking at it objectively and mm-hmm. saying, is this fact? Why would they hold this? And what is the actual issue here? Because their statement, that emotional statement and judgment that they put forward was not the actual issue. Right. And so this is where, you know, all the time with our clients trying to keep that separation because I can solve the issue. I can't solve that emotion and I can't solve the judgment that got slung out at me where I I didn't have a a way to respond to it sometimes even. Right. We've seen an increase of our clients being accused of bullying when they're trying to manage performance. That is you're harassing me. You're bullying me. You're not allowed to talk to me like that. You're not allowed to hold me accountable. Hmm. That's bullying. And and going so far, and it could just be a Canadian thing because we're really nice here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that that it's going where because our laws are such that it's you know we've got anti harassment and anti bullying laws and and so. Anytime an employee brings forth that complaint, there's an investigation that's made into the leader. And so leaders are now feeling like, well, I can't even manage my people without, used to be that they'd get accused of micromanaging. Now they're going that step further and it's so inflammatory, right? And, and then how do you trust your employee after they've made that, that uh, you know, they've, they've brought forward that complaint? And this is where you know we're actually teaching our leaders to say, I wanna be clear, I'm managing your performance. This conversation is in the context of my job as your leader to manage your performance. I get yep. to set your expectations. I get to hold you accountable. I get to tell you when you're doing a good job or when you're not doing a good job because a lot of these folks are looking at that behavior. I don't like the way you made me feel in that conversation. So you're bad, I'm good. And this is where we're gonna go with this. And, and so that's, again, that separating out the emotion and the emotional judgment and really looking at the issue objectively and how do we problem solve it?
0: Yes, absolutely. I was just wondering, you know, there are nowadays so many topics that that um, creates a lot of shades of gray because harassment, bullying, inclusion, diversity, all of these topics, highly, highly crucial and important topics to talk about. But at the same time, right, I can well imagine that for leaders, it's sometimes very hard to lead, to hold people accountable, as you've just said, because the fear of making a mistake, right, of saying something yeah. perhaps that can be interpreted differently, may get in the way. But
2: leaders, um, and we talked about this in in our book. So you think you can lead, where, you know, leaders just show up and lead. They have never felt that they needed to develop skills in order to deal with managing performance or Mm -hmm. having difficult conversations. And still, despite the challenges that are there, the notion that they're, they're good leaders they stick with that and then they just allow employees to do whatever so that that employees buttons aren't pressed and of course that reduces productivity in organizations and creates other issues and and, and until leaders start looking at leadership as their profession <laughs> i'm a professional leader it's not just something that you know comes with my job it's mine and it's mine to develop mm-hmm we're currently doing a, a leadership foundation program with one of our clients where employees, the leaders that, and it's not not an inexpensive program as you can imagine when you put you know 20 people through a program, but what, the, what these leaders who are going through the program are saying, I don't have, have enough time at work to do my homework. <laughs> and, and the, the people, um, the leader in, in HR and the CEO is saying, do it at home. <laughs> yeah, we're oh, doing this for you. We're doing this for you. You are not. You don't even appreciate enough what we're giving to you that you can't take a couple of hours at home for yourself. You mm-hmm. see? It's, you're not doing this for me. This is for you. But a lot of new leaders, they want to be spoon-fed mm-hmm. around these types of things and don't see that there's something in this for me because I take – Leading seriously, as seriously as if I was a computer expert or a psychologist or any other profession. Leadership is a profession, but you don't have to do any, you don't have to have any education to be a leader. Mm
0: -hmm. And and what I'm noticing quite frequently is that those leaders are being promoted into leadership roles. However, focus still on the expertise uh, predominantly and the actual leadership part. Is, is kind of being ignored almost. It's exactly what you mentioned, right? It, it will come to me because my personality is right. I'm a good communicator and relationship builder. It's it's fine. Yeah.
1: Well, one of the things we've been saying to clients a lot, if you if you sort of look at the evolution of sort of management theory in organizations and, and you know, hi- historically, there was a lo- this really great pool of middle management in organizations, and these folks actually had the time in the space. To, to lead the, their people and their functions. And, and then, you know, in their brilliance, they decided, well, that was all fat and we needed to cut all that fat out. And so now we have people who are functional experts who lead off the side of their desks. And, and, and this is really problematic. I think one of the things that coming post COVID that is, you know, hopefully this one of the benefits coming out of all of this is a recognition in organizations that employees are coming into the workplace where we need leaders who can create psychologically safe environments where Mm -hmm. they, you know, that security is really important, where they need to have the time in the space to engage with, with their employees, not just for 30 minutes every other week, which some of our clients are saying is all the time they get with their direct reports, but really to be able to have that meaningful time and space to truly lead their people and develop their people. And so starting to have that conversation of how do those leadership structures need to evolve where we're not tasking our leaders to do all of the work of the function and all of the people leadership because those organizations who continue on this path of not having enough resourcing in that 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 at the leadership levels they're going to have way higher turnover than those organizations who get the mix of leaders to employees right and and functional responsibilities to leadership responsibilities right
2: well especially when you get occupations that lend themselves to certain personality types that are more or more left brain than right brain in their orientation. So we've worked with a lot of engineers, accountants, where, you, you know, you introduce the notion of people leadership to them, and you got to engage your employees. And here are three things you can do. And there's that deer in the headlight stare, right? It's like, Oh, my God, you expect me to do that? <laughs> it's like, can't we just do our work? Yeah. You see? because they, coming out of their comfort zone in the way, for, for example, to influence, to become influential as though, oh, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> you know, that's easy peasy. I'll just stop being an introvert and start being an extroverted influencer. Right? Sure. It, it, sure, <laughs> easy. But, but it, it's presented to leaders in a way where they should be able to do that. Or they should be able to negotiate without ever having any training in how to how to even self-regulate, manage their own emotions during opposition in a negotiation, and so they just give in.
1: Anne and I often talk about this when clients go in, go down this place of, you know, what we call magical thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes. and that they should well they're, they're they're executives they should they shouldn't need any help and it's like yes that's our great big book of shoulds that we brought in <laughs> okay. should number 214 we have here and and it's it's a, a lot of that again is driven by that well if they need it maybe I need it I don't want to have to need it or acknowledge that I needed training or support or maybe I'm not as great or as effective as a leader as I'd like to be you know, pretend I am or the play at being, and all of that gets in that way. All of that, you know, we hear it on that one side of, you know, they shouldn't need this or on the flip side of it. Well, you know, they're never going to change and you can't change leaders anyway. And so why bother investing in them basically, right? It's like they are who they are. And in both of those cases, we're giving away our power as leaders, keeping us from being legendary because on the one hand we're treating things as, you you know, unmovable and unfixable. And so therefore we just have to continue to live in this environment that we know is not really, working for us. Or we have to, you know, we send a message out to everyone else that, you know, I didn't need it, so you shouldn't need it. And then they scramble to try and do it on their own. And again, nothing gets fixed or resolved. Or, and, and in both of those cases, we're not leading, right? Where it's our fear that's coming in, and, and that stops the organization, that stops leaders if they're doing it to themselves. But we see it on a collective scale in many of our clients, right? Where they just go into that place of, well, we're powerless to change anything, so we just won't bother.
0: And I assume that's a moment when you come in and um, you really focus on, okay, what is the issue and what do we need to do and put that plan in place? Yes.
1: Yeah. We Absolutely. talk about leading them. So we, you know, it's like they're not able to lead themselves. So our job is to lead them until they can pick up and start to lead themselves. And, and it's everything from, believe it or not, you know, they say that they complain about their meetings not being effective and we design their meeting cadence, their meeting structure, how their agenda is going to work, their rules for what goes on the agenda. We put the whole system around it and then we sit with them in their meetings until they are able to self-manage it, right? And so, so that's the thing when you're really trying to, and, and especially in clients that are trying to make some quick change and move out of dysfunction they, they need a bit more hand-holding but but it, it's that notion of if they haven't done it for themselves already they're not going to and so we have to accept and acknowledge that that's something that they are missing the skill around and we either find another way to do it whether the external resource or there's someone else internally who might play that role or we figure out what's the path for getting them to a place of self-sufficiency to close that
0: gap for them. I'm coming back to the actual leadership skills, right? And what can be done. However, what we have mentioned now a few times or touched on was judgment. And I mentioned right at the beginning, And let's come back to that. That's an important topic. And I do believe it's an important topic. Again, something that came up this morning with a group I was working with, right? How can we listen actively and constructively so without any judgment? I believe it's possible. I believe, however, it can be really hard to do that. Mindfulness for me personally and plays a huge role in being, you know, judgment-free or removing the judgment. I would love to hear from the two of you in terms of, you know, some low-hanging fruits we can basically pick to say, you know, this is the way how we can manage our judgment better and really approach someone in a truly non-judgmental way
2: it 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 isn't as easy you know it, it sounds like it should be easy it's one of those should things but the neural pathways in the brain are are wired in our self-protective system to go to judgment because what we're always doing in in that self-protective system is am i safe relative to other people or are other people reflecting back what I want to see? Are they meeting my needs? or Are they frustrating my needs? If they're not meeting my needs, there's something wrong with them and I judge them. And, and so it is that less conscious place that we need to develop out of when it comes to, to judgment. And, and one of the modules that we teach is, is on the difference between a judgment and assessing and how to move how to sh- actually shift the brain from subjectivity to objectivity mm-hmm. because this is something that not just in an individual behavior but in problem-solving and making decisions am I doing am I making this decision based on a fear or or a subjective motive or am I doing it in the best interest of the organization and so looking at and teaching leaders how to assess against an objective criteria, of course, means they have to have an objective criteria to assess what's going on against. And and as Heather referred to earlier, most leaders say, not like me, bad. (laughs) That I am the criteria on which I judge all People's performance. Yeah. And if they're not doing it like me, what's wrong with them? That is that very undeveloped or inexper- un- untaught leader who doesn't realize what they're doing. Because you can take a leader from starting with, you know, is, is this employee just lazy or what's going on to finding out that the employee was having difficulty at home and wasn't making it to work on time and their productivity had dropped but the leader was just framing it as they must be lazy without exploring without getting curious and of course in mindfulness we always go shift from shift from judgment to curiosity start asking questions non-defensive communication as well it's like start inquiring about what's going on to to begin the process of depersonalizing and taking the emotion out of to find out what the issue is so so if you want the simple shift from judging notice that you're judging make the shift to asking a question and being curious about what's actually going on.
1: It's interesting because this is a big one in our family dynamic Um, because we have some (laughs) members of our family who lean towards the judgmental so don't we all (laughs) you see you should see my what goes on in my head when I walk around my neighborhood right what were they thinking why were they doing that right and I'm like oh look at me being judgmental (laughs) because at work we you know in our work context as Ann pointed out it's like we're always moving into assessing and we're always really clear with our clients saying we're not judging we're not passing judgment here we're just assessing we're noticing we're seeing and And let's look at it from out. what's the actual issue that that we need to resolve. But it was interesting. And I had a conversation with uh, my almost 20 year old daughter the other day, and she was making some comments about an experience that she'd had with her father, my ex-husband. And it was all about he's very judgmental, very, very, very judgmental. And in that everything that comes out of his mouth is him passing judgment on one thing or the other that really doesn't need to happen. It's so just she was talking about the discomfort of that, right? And that, you know, and, and, and at 20 being very, very aware, not only when he does it, but when she hears friends doing it, this language that's been introduced to her that I certainly at 20 did not have the benefit of. I didn't, you know, these conversations were not part of our, our household. But it was interesting because Anne made the observation of because we practice non-judgment, we actively practice and we call each other out in our social settings as a family if someone's being judgmental her level of discomfort because it's not her norm so so now when she encounters it it's like having to teach her it's like well what how do you respond to someone who's talking like that in order to get to to redirect the conversation right yeah. and 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 i think that's part of it is that i think we're also used to it we all have friends we've all grown up in environments where that was a little bit of the normal practice right mm-hmm. and and when you start to become aware of it in yourself you also get heightened awareness of it in others and yeah. when we are being judgmental again that's that power thing right it's we're giving away our power because passing that judgment to Anne's point, when our client says, oh, they're just lazy, Yeah, I've passed judgment, but it means I can't do anything about it, right? It's like... <laughs> not my problem. It's about them. It's not about me or, you know, it's, it's, I, I, you know, they're not doing it the way I want. So do you know what I mean? It's like, we, we have to recognize because we're, we're operating out of the emotional part of our brain and we have to shift back into our rational brain, curiosity, objective criteria. What's the actual issue? You know, what, what, what's the outcome we're looking for really focusing in on those pieces. And that allows us to, to kind of, to start to make that shift, but for sure, absolutely. The first step is just our own awareness of of when we're in and, and started to course correct.
0: Oh yeah. It's daily practice. I grew up yeah. in a very judgmental household and yes. it's like, wow, I'm working through it every day. And, <laughs> but, but it motivates me at the same time to do it differently and to move yes. more more into the assessment stage. Right. Yes. And be curious. I love being curious. Um, <laughs> however, what I've noticed by the way, is that when I use the term assessment, people touch it quite frequently. You're assessing me ah okay uh, all right and, and and that that I find in uh, interesting, so is it about you know simply the language we are using? because assessment to me it, it means curiosity, looking at the facts, trying to find out what's really going on, showing gen- some genuine interest. But not the case for everybody. People are defensive. You see, it's a, it's that self, automatic,
2: self-protective, where you, you deflecting and making you into a victimizer because they don't want you to touch them. You see, and so whether you say assessment, whether you say judgment, whether you say, you, you know, <laughs> I like what you do, <laughs> if somebody is predisposed to be a victim, they will accuse you of being a victimizer victimizing them and using the wrong language. And we've gone way too far around language because everyone's afraid to say anything these days for fear of a reaction. As Heather referred to before, if a leader can't say, it's my job to assess your performance. I'm here to help you improve. Mm-hmm. If, if they don't feel confident enough to say that and instead they move to defensiveness and they explain themselves and explain what they're doing instead, the employee has just gotten their power from them. Yeah, Because we don't have to defend our right, our entitlement to lead, which is what a lot of leaders are doing
0: these days. Ah, looking at the, the clock and thinking, oh, where's the time gone? Um, my list of topics in front of me, right? Uh, there's, there's one. I wanted to talk about both books, but there's one topic I definitely want to touch upon, and perhaps we can combine it even with your book so you think you can lead. You mentioned, Heather, that you have developed, based on your knowledge on um, ABC, I wanted to say MBTI <laughs> by Carl Jung, um, the Striving Styles Personality System. And you also mentioned beforehand that one part of it is the identification of needs. So I'm curious now, what are the parts of it? How do you apply it? What can leaders find out about themselves? One of the
2: things that that I love about having um, Heather and I having developed this differently than the reports from the MBTI is that we look at both need satisfiers and need dissatisfiers for employees, for leaders, for different work styles. And, and so we have, a you know, right out of the gate, we have that criteria for saying, Oh, this is why you're so unhappy at work, or, you know, you're not able to do strategy. You happen to be a visionary and you have a need to be perceptive about the future and future happenings, but you're stuck maintaining and doing that day-to-day and that's frustrating your needs and and that's that's what's going to change behavior and and so in our books and in all of our reports on the striving styles we focus them on these particular areas around relationships or leadership or you know what's satisfying to your style in a relationship will be very different than what's satisfying to my style in a relationship and if i If I try and adapt to your style, (laughs) then I'm not going to be happy in the relationship and and vice versa. So knowing these things, being able to exchange reports, looking at building teams and and team distribution as they do with the Myers-Briggs, but looking at what each member on the team needs in order to stay in their self-actualizing system as opposed to their self-protective system, are those focal points and areas that we can best serve our clientele with, with, with the assessment, the reports and the training that we do with that.
1: I think from my, I'm going to talk about it a, a little bit differently, even from my own personal experience and, and benefit that I got from it. I, I think that the first thing of really with the model and it's like, it gets echoed in our clients' responses is number one, I finally know why I behave the way I do. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, sometimes my own behavior is a little bit curious to me because mm-hmm. it seems to be opposite <laughs> to what I thought I wanted to do. I now get that. So the fact that I understand that, I understand what's driving my behavior, first of all, it puts me in in a position of power. So I can actually do something about it. Secondly, I think that the biggest thing that, and, and this is a little bit more of an emotional feeling is it's like, wow, I'm okay because this is authentically me and it's okay for me to live in this place. I don't have to be more like that or more like that, or I can just fully embrace my unique potential. And I think that's particularly true for, for some of us that have, you know, the personality styles that are a little bit different from, from others. Like I know for Anna and I we're both thinking types and as females, that's not quite as common. And so you always think there's maybe there's something wrong with you because you don't think the way those other women
0: do. (laughs) And,
1: and, and so it's a little bit harder to relate. And so it was like, wow, this explains it. I totally get it now. And, and so because I get it, I can shift, I can adapt my behavior, not to the point where I'm making myself unauthentic or that I'm feeling like there's something wrong with me or, you know, putting me in a place of discomfort, but I can really show up and be present as me um, and be okay with the different aspects of my personality. And the third one I'm going to talk about is the fact that it really helps to understand what you need to develop. So from, from uh, again, brain functions, you've got four, you've got a predominant one and a secondary one. Those, are, those work really well. You know, there's some things that they get self-protective and there's things you really wanna know and understand about it. But our third and our fourth functions are, are typically less developed for us. And, and it becomes a priority for us to develop. Like in my case, my feeling function, when I did the MBTI, when I was in my twenties, I scored zero. <laughs> So my relational, my use of the relational quadrant of my brain big fat nada so what that meant for me was I would rather get up and talk in front of a thousand people than I would talk one-on-one comfortably talk Mm one-on-one about myself personally you know going into small groups social settings it was like put me on stage where you know it's it's like there's that separation you you know and and just that my my people refer to me as being intimidating and I never knew why and it's because I didn't know how to shift out of my brain and and into that more relational aspect right because it's like you get the full force of my uh, uh intuition and my thinking Function and and what it allowed me to do then is say okay well if I need to develop up neural pathways to that part of my brain that I'm not using today what can I do and 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 the system made it really simple it's like well I start by initiating conversations on elevators because that would scare the bejeebers out of me I'd feel so uncomfortable right? and, and, I, and I, I would have friends who could do it no problem right just talking to strangers hey how's it going how's the weather you know what just you know, I'd go dead silent. So I just started, you know, talking to the cashier talking to, and then over time, because of that pattern, it allowed, I got really comfortable with it. That's not the, the big achievement in it, though. It What it's allowed me to do is actually ha- be a better communicator in my personal relationships. It also allows me to be more authentic with my clients because I can do the personal storytelling along with giving the information. So it allowed me to use more of my whole brain than just the two parts that were naturally hardwired and working really well so I could be more holistic in my approach. And, and that's To the benefit of myself personally my relationships in my personal life but absolutely uh in those interactions with my clients where you you know it's it's, i can help them on a different level because i've done this developmental work
0: myself Wonderful story. And I I keep saying um, to myself, to my partner as well, friends, as well as clients, the work you're doing in terms of leadership development will benefit you in your entire life. This isn't just about showing up in a different way at at work. Both teachers, don't they? So we're considering us as whole people, right? (laughs) Taking personal stuff to work and vice versa (laughs) is key here too. And, and Heather, you actually shared a little bit more now about the skills as well, because I was constantly thinking about, so what are the skills the ladies are referring to all the time? The leadership skills, right? Right in the beginning, Anne, you mentioned very clearly, leadership isn't just about being and their personality. There are some clear skills. Yeah. But now I'm wondering after Heather's story and listening to it, is it a kind of a foundation of skills that needs to be met? Or is it just very, very individually, depending on your quadrants or not the quadrants, how the quadrants are being developed or met?
1: It's we, you know, in our book, um, so you think you can lead, we we sort of map out the competencies that we believe that underlie it. It what what's going to happen is is depending on our personality, some will come more naturally mm-hmm. to some others, you know, to some of us based on our personality versus versus others, right? So in my case, I had to work more on the relational aspect because that's my third function. Yeah. If someone has that as their predominant function, the planning planning and structuring and defining which I do really easily and naturally it's going to be more of a a development activity for them but but there is you know we sort of look at it in the model from once we move out of self-awareness and emotional uh, intelligence is you know other awareness what we consider so self-awareness other awareness as the two fundamentals uh then there's um when we look at we divide it up and look at it uh, as to the competencies that are required to support leaders uh, or, or support employees at different stages of their performance development So I'll let Anne uh, walk us through them. (laughs) Anne is
0: waiting already.
2: Well, I was trying to remember them because you know my memory for detail is—I write things and then I forget that I've written them. So, so, so the the model that we we work with is is somewhat similar to the situational leadership model, where you focus on the what employees need in the performance development cycle, and so leaders have to be able to adapt their approach at at different stages that the employee is at and so they they need to know how to be directive they need to know how to set expectations clear expectations using a smart criteria for example they need to feel comfortable communicating Details. They need to be able to depersonalize and boundary um, those types of employees that say, oh, you don't need to tell me how to do it. I've got this. They they need to be able to stay focused on task and and really be able to clearly define. And then as you move into coaching, you need to pull out your interpersonal skills and ask questions and inquire and, and give feedback, corrective feedback. And then when an employee has developed some degree of competence and you move more into a facilitating approach, delegating authority, for example, learning how to delegate those types of of intangibles, being able to assess an employee's performance relative to how are they behaving. They're functionally um, succeeding, but boy, their behavior is way off base. and, And I, as a leader, need to know how to communicate to an employee and to describe what successful behavior looks like. And and so we take it along this continuum with a number of different competencies that, that are spelt out and the how-to of it as well.
1: Yeah, the other... Piece I want to add to that is sorry. I yeah, the other piece I want to add to that because I think it's really important and and it's not something that we've been Anne and I've been at this for a long time looking at leadership competencies and competency models. But the one that we talk about all the time with our clients and and that we teach is the one around exercising authority. So in the beginning, when we're working with a leader or with with an employee who is is new to their job, they're just starting out with us, and we coach all of our clients around this. We have to establish our authority first and foremost as the leader leader. because it's up to us this is a core competency for us so that we're actually setting the conditions under which our employee is going to follow us then as we as that employee continues in their development we are reinforcing our authority so again we've got those boundaries we might move them out a little bit based on what we've learned about the employee but at the end of the day we're not giving away our authority and then we continue along with that so and you know we as ann says you move into delegation and so we're now delegating authority we're still retaining visibility and control. but we're Mm -hmm. delegating a certain aspect of the authority. So that's a really important competency. And and part of the reason why it's so important is that, we have to get comfortable with exercising our own power and authority, which a lot of leaders in our experience that that's where they struggle a lot. Right. And, and because they don't feel like they're entitled to exercise that authority and to perform their role as it's expected to be performed, they then become really permissive and and they give it away. So we can teach you all the skills and we can give you the models for non defensive communication and issue resolution and uh, you know, how to give feedback and all of those pieces. But if, 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 again, alongside of that, we have to build up our own ability to establish and exercise and maintain our authority as leaders, because that's what ultimately makes the difference as to whether we're effective or not.
0: The the beauty of what you have just described for me is you develop your team by developing yourself. And it's a real, for me at least, really clear growth path.
2: Yes, it, it, it is. And just to add to what Heather was saying, um, I recently had this experience with um, two leaders who had just taken on uh, larger teams. And they didn't know that it, they had the authority to build team norms for their teams, to, to hold team meetings with in a different way than their manager who didn't hold team meetings, <laughs> they thought they had to lead the same way. And when leaders don't know, when, when it hasn't been defined for them, this is your authority, you get to decide. And when we talk about power and authority, we're mostly referring to what you have the, the ability to decide, make decisions around. And when we give that away and we allow somebody else or some idea that we have about, this is the way we do team building, then we're not we're not taking responsibility for our own authority as as the leader of the team. It's ours. We get to we get to run it the way we yeah. want to run it.
0: Take charge, own it. Yeah, yes, and, own it. And what triggers me right away is, ooh, live live in your creative world, right? Yeah. How can we do it differently? <laughs> yeah, that exactly. really excites me right away. <laughs>
1: I, I sometimes laugh though, it's like, you know, we talk about, you know, leaders, it's lead, right? Leaders lead, that's a, you know, it's a verb. <laughs> it's yes. like, it's it's the, we're not objects as leaders. We are, there's an active thing that we need to be doing all the time. And we have to be asking ourselves, what am I doing to lead in this situation? How am I leading? And, and sometimes they'll say things, well, it's, it's not my place to lead. And I said, well, th- you know, that's where we shift to the situational model where, well, you're in facilitative leading. So you might not be in directing and controlling leading, you're in facilitating leading, and that's still leading, but to do nothing, and, and to just sort of sit back and not sort of step into that gap that's there, you know, or recognizing to Anne's story where I need to, I need to take a step back and go into that directing and lead and be really definitive and and clear and set those boundaries and establish myself as the leader, you, you know, a, again, we, we, they forget that that's, there's a whole bunch of action and, and that's, that's the competency support us to be effective in taking that action. But first and foremost, it's understanding what that really looks like. And I, you know, we don't, not everyone has had great role models for leaders. They, mm-hmm. you know, you figure it out. I know mm-hmm. I did. I was, I was leading people when I was in my twenties and that nobody gave, taught me how to do anything. Yeah. So <laughs> let me figure it out as I go. Oh, that's not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, goodness me,
0: when I think back into my 20s, mm, uh, it still yeah. hurts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's <great. laughs> Where can people find out more about you, the work you're doing and the book that we haven't talked about, who you are meant to be, for example.
1: Well, our, really? uh, we have a, our website, drannitsaris uh, Pretty much is the gateway to everything that we have, our books, uh, our programs, our resources, the work we do with our clients, our podcasts, Dismantling Dysfunction. You can find pretty much everything
0: there in one spot. You can. And I had to listen to the podcast. And if you want to know about different kinds of leaders the challenges, the opportunities, and get some more of those top tips that Heather and Anne have shared here today, then that's the place to go. Uh, I will certainly keep listening to it. Thank you so much, ladies, for your generosity here today, for the humor you brought, and obviously for all the beautiful insights you shared with us. I could talk to you forever. Unfortunately, (laughs) um, our time is up, but thank you so, so much.
2: Thank you for having us, Kathleen. It's been wonderful. Yeah, Kathleen, I echo that. This has been a lot of fun. Yes.
1: Yeah, <laughs> great opportunity.
0: Come back anytime.
1: Thank <laughs> Excellent. You. Thank
0: you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening out there. Let us know how you find this episode and leave some feedback for us. And most importantly, contact us directly if there's anything we can help you with. So have a great remaining day. Take good care and speak to you soon. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Legendary Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then remember to subscribe to the show either on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or on my website, www.kathleenmerkel.com. I would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about, what topics really resonated with you, and how you're enjoying the show in general. Please do leave your review on iTunes as well. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time. Bye.